Oh, party foul. I went to the other room and I had the coffee all set up. I had the beans in there and the water and I didn't hit the brew button. So means I'm not going to have any tonight. So I'm going to have to get through this massive read without it, without my, without my blankie to cuddle with and keep me warm. And maybe uh, if you're really nice, Sarah will bring you a cup. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, you know what? (laughs) That's a good point. I'm going to go ask her. I will be right back. Shabbat Shalom, Hebrews and Shebrews. My name is Noel Joshua Hadley, and this is the Unexpected Cosmology. I'm a little bit out of breath. I just ran upstairs and ran back down. Let me try this one more time. Shabbat Shalom from Under the Dome. My name is Noel Joshua Hadley, and this is the Unexpected Cosmology. Hopefully, you know your coordinates on the internet, but there's always that one person who shows up and doesn't know the faintest clue where they are. So <laughs> if if that's you, maybe you'll stick around and learn something. I think I'm ready for tonight. Ready or not, we're doing it though. And this is another Millennial King, uh, Kingdom plus Mud Flood or Bust. What I'm about to go over is a weird and strange and epic tale. And by epic, I mean biblical. And And as I was telling the group before we got started, we're going to be talking about the divorce of Israel tonight. And I I would guess that if I were to go talk to most Christians, and I would if I would tell them that Yahuwah the Most High Elohim divorced Israel, they would be like, "What?" They wouldn't have the faintest clue what I'm talking about. In fact, I do go tell people, and they just they look at me like. They don't want to challenge it because they feel like that's maybe in the Bible, but they, they've never heard it. There's, there's never been sermons taught on that before. But guys, this is the gospel. What I'm going to be going over tonight is the gospel message. And one of the reasons, well, I'll be talking about this tonight, but one of the reasons that it's not covered, I suspect, from the pulpit, and the seminary boys, they all learn about this, but they don't preach about it because if people knew the story, and they started putting the pieces together, the we are Israel, they would go, wait, what? You know, they're, they're going to start looking at the Old Testament. They're going to start reading it. They're going to see that as their story. And they're going to start seeing what Yahuwah is telling them to do. And we can't have that, right? We can't have this obedience to his commands. And let's get started. I told everybody uh, beforehand that we are starting on page 52. And here we go. This is called People of the Covenant and the Stone of Scone. And of course, um, this is a treading on where we were last week when we went through the Cities of the Millennial Kingdom. And just so nobody's confused, we're still on the Cities of the Millennial Kingdom and we're dealing with Britain or Great Britain. 
After initially publishing this paper, I was told by one reader that I had completely missed the bus and bumbled the ball, among other idioms, on the Church of Britain situation. Don't get him wrong. In the game of cold and hot, I was scalding. What had apparently happened is that I was howling off down the Hound Trail and in the right direction, mind you, but had failed to read the big, bold letters embedded into the hillside, Britain. It's a Hebrew word. Yes, you heard me right. I nearly choked on my tea and puff pastry when reading the very thing. Looks like I have another homework assignment in the making, as the Celtic language very likely developed out of the ancient Hebrew language as well, the Celts being descended from Yasharel and all, as were the Scots, as were the Saxons, as were the people of Denmark. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. It means covenant, in case you were wondering. The word Brit, or Berith, carries with it the sense of cutting. You will recall how Abraham personally observed Yahuwah passing between the severed halves of an animal in Genesis 15, 17, when a covenant was cut with him. To add to that, the word for people in Hebrew is am. And so the term covenant people in Hebrew would be Britem, which is rather close to Britain, don't you think? Even the word ish in Hebrew means man. British, therefore, directs us to the covenant man, or perhaps the covenant men. They are coming, you know. I am reminded of it often around these parts, come every July. The British are coming. You may be wondering how, the, how that connects us with Yasharel. Simple. They, too, are the people of the covenant. It says so right here. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and guard my covenant... Then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak unto the children of Yasharel, Exodus 19, 5-6. Obeying his voice is identified with guarding his covenant. But then why does Yahuwah specify the entire earth is his? I prompt that question solely based upon the fact that Britain is nearly a world away from ancient Yasharel. Perhaps he was setting the diaspora up, letting them know that they could still turn to him in their dispersion and become a peculiar treasure if indeed they guard his covenant. It means wherever they are or happen to be when penitent hearts begin to call upon his name again, they too can become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation even if it's an island in the Atlantic. Right this very moment, you may be asking yourself why you just scrolled past a picture of a rock. There are even the buttons standing around outside having a conversation about the rock. And what could possibly be so interesting about it? What are they saying, I wonder? Perhaps they are upset at the hostile takeover by our reptilian overlords, who are now using the stone as a foot warmer. It's really difficult to tell from this angle, though I am attempting to improve my skills at lip reading. The rest of you recognize a stone of scone sighting when it is shown and are probably already bracing yourselves as the, stone of, as the scone stone is scarcely aroused in any conversation without the promise of long-winded tales. Try not to roll your eyes when I tell you I shall try not to disappoint. It's a bad habit. I mean, had you continued rolling your eyes while scrolling past the pictures directly below us, you may have succumbed to a, or I should say even above us, you may have succumbed to a bad case of disequilibrium. 
I am not responsible for any injuries inquired while reviewing my homework, FYI. As you can tell, I had a fun time writing this this week. There is the stone of scone again in Westminster Abbey. You may have to squint your eyes at the coronation chair, but believe me, it is there. I decided to include a photo of Queen Elizabeth being coronated in 1953 because a writer is never late, nor is he early. And all of this goes much deeper than the British covenant connection. I am quite convinced that the kings of Yasharel were coronated on this very stone. And since the millennial kingdom is today's topic, Yahusha very likely was as well. No, I can't prove that, as I wasn't there, nor were you. But I think I can build a case for it if you'll give me time. I'll do my best as always. And then you can see here my little snippet from the Wikipedia. The Stone of Scone, also known as the Stone of Destiny, and often referred to in England as the Coronation Stone, is an oblong block of red sandstone that has been used for centuries in the coronation of the monarchs of Scotland. It is also known as Jacob's Pillow Stone and the Tannis Stone. And uh, something else in Scottish Gaelic. Let's see if I can try to pronounce that. Clashna Sina Minhain or whatever. I'll just, I just need to tell this story really quickly. Uh, when we were, yes, it's another traveling through Europe story. I so apologize, but you know, we, we spent a month in Scotland and um, it was quite incredible that uh, I, I, I think it would be an honest assessment that I could only understand about 20 to maybe 30% of what the Scottish were saying. And it was, it was unbelievable because I look at to Sarah and be like, did you under, understand any of that? She'd be like, uh, no. And I'm like, we are in an English speaking country. Right. And it's like a totally different language. Unbelievable. As you can see, the stone of scone has been utilized for centuries in the coronation of Britain's monarchs. Wikipedia tells us Scotland in the opening paragraph rather than Britain. So what gives? You have to skip down several paragraphs to see how the official narrative explains its arrival in Britain. In 1296, during the First Scottish War of Independence, King Edward I of England took the stone as spoils of war and removed it to Westminster Abbey. 1296 is a long time ago by any measurement of history. But even prior to Scotland, well over a thousand years beforehand, according to official history, the Stone of Scone apparently arrived in Ireland. We'll get there in good time because I would be completely neg negligent to overlook the other dangling carrots. The Stone of Scone and Yaakov's Pillow Stone are one and the same. I am inclined to believe it is Yaakov's Pillow Stone, which you can read about for yourself in Genesis 28. I decided to do a little additional sleuth work and Scone, it seems, taps into a Hebrew origin. Uh, Shikana is a Hebrew word which means dwelling or presence. Though I am told it can be written out as, uh, you can see there, S-H-K-O-N or S-H-K-N. And so the Stone of Scone appears to be giving us a deeper meaning. So as you can see, it's, it's spelled out like scone, like scone stone. It is the stone of dwelling, of the Shekinah. That translation will hold deeper meaning in a moment. A second reason the stone piques my interest is because Adam's altar no longer exists. He and Hava built one immediately after the serpent episode. Where did it go, hmm? You will tell me Noah's flood destroyed it. Sure, but then Noah had it rebuilt. 
even afterwards, it was destroyed, probably by Og or Nimrod's boys during the Genesis 13 war. But regardless, Abraham was required to repair it for the sacrifice of Yitchak. And even still, Yitchak and Rivka helped to maintain it. Where am I getting all this information from? You will have to read the full report, as I have no time to repeat that information here. It's called The Altar of Yahuwah, A Life, which I, of course, also made into a video. Did you stop everything to read the provided paper top to bottom? That would include putting your entire life on hold. I will assume so, because <laughs> people do that to me all the time. Have you? Did you just drop everything in your life to, uh, to watch that three-hour video I gave you to prove you wrong? Because if you read it, then you will know that it was Adam and Hava who built the altar of unhewn stone upon Mount Zion on the very spot where the temple would later be erected. But not only that, their first sacrifice was a unicorn. The only way a unicorn could be sacrificed on the altar is if it were, clean, were a clean animal. It would chew its cud and its hooves would be split by necessity. Not very horse-like, if I do say so myself. When I initially wrote about the unicorn in my altar research, I was simply reporting what I found and had absolutely no idea of its ramifications, none whatsoever. Well, take a middle note of it, the unicorn. You may already be putting the pieces together because a unicorn has much to do with the Stone of Scone, symbolically. It was in that same paper where I discussed the Stone of Scone's origin story being Yaakov's pillow. And even before that, the altar of Yahuwah. At the time, I had suggested writing another wing to the report, which would attempt to trace its travels across the motionless realm from Zion to Westminster Abbey. Looks like I'm finally getting around to it. I had absolutely no clue it would lead me to the cornerstone of the millennial kingdom, though. Like I was saying earlier, Yaakov's dream about a ladder leading to heaven can be found in Genesis 28. Here is what another text has to say about the same event. Now, if you guys miss what I'm talking about here, I am saying that the Stone of Scone is the same altar that Yitchak was sacrificed on, uh, the same one that uh, Cain murdered Abel over, the same one that Adam and Eve sacrificed as soon as they came out of Eden. So that's how old this rock is, uh, what I'm claiming. And here's what we read. Yaakov took 12 stones from the altar on which his father Yitchak had lain bound as a sacrifice. And he said, it was the purpose of Elohim to let 12 tribes arise, but they have not been begotten by Abraham or Yitchak. If now these 12 stones will unite into a single one, then shall I know for a certainty that I am destined to become the father of the 12 tribes. At this time, the second miracle came to pass. The 12 stones joined themselves together and made one, which he put under his head. And at once it became soft and downy like a pillow. That reference there comes from the legends of the Yahudim, which of course is lighting up with the Genesis account. The origins of the stone of scone can be found in the 12 separate stones, which Yaakov used as a pillow and that were then miraculously joined together to become one. That right there would explain why anyone would have the audacity to claim the stone scone or the scone stone might double as a pillow. Thank you. My wife just arrived with coffee. I got to take a drink here because it's nice and piping hot. Where was I? That right there would explain why anyone would have the audacity to claim the scone stone might double as a pillow seeing as how it measures 22 and 16.7 inches in length and width, weighing in at approximately 335 pounds. That would be quite the stone to pick up. 
Otherwise, the only sort of person who could fluff that stuff is a Nephilim giant. And as you can see, he removed those stones from the same altar which Yitchak, his father, had been bound upon. I must have read Genesis 28 several dozen times before I ever realized the point which Yahuwah was attempting to make with the miracle. He explains why at the close of the chapter. Reading the sign from Genesis for real. And he called the name of that place Beitzel. But the name of that city was called Luz at the first. And Yaakov vowed a vow saying, if Elohim will be with me and will guard me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall Yahuwah be my Elohim. And this dome, which I have set for a pillar, shall be Elohim's house. And of all that you shall give me, I will surely give the tenth unto you. Genesis 28, 22. He called the name of the place Be it El or Bethel, which is otherwise interpreted House of El. The meaning of the stone is given to us and couldn't be made any clearer. Wherever the stone is set as a memorial, there shall Elohim's house be. I take that to mean the very presence of Yahuwah, his Shekinah. You would think the writers of scripture would do a better job of tracking its whereabouts then if that were the case. And that's precisely the mistake that I made. The stone or the scone is talked about in scripture as well as other ancient texts. It simply doesn't pop out at us if we don't know what to look for. It may have even been scrubbed in some parts uh, by the Yahudim, seeing as how they have rejected the stone. And we'll get there. Reading a little later on down the pipeline, Yaakov is in Mitreim with his 12 children. He's on his deathbed, about to succumb to a restful sleep in Sheol with his forefathers. But before doing so, forecast the future for each one of their family dynasties. When he gets to Yosef, his 11th son, this is what we read. Yosef is a fruitful uh, bough, even a fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. But his bow or his bow abode in strength and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the might uh, Elohim or the mighty Elohim of Yaakov. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Yasharel. I suppose the last line in the dialogue can be read in a number of ways. Some translations have focused upon Yosef being the guardian of the stone, which is how I ultimately take it. There are obviously messianic connotations not to be ignored. But then don't make this a forest for the trees issue when the likelihood is that Yaakov had brought the scone with him to Mitraim. He apparently couldn't think of no other child to entrust it to but Yosef. Reuven was the eldest son of Yaakov and Leah, and very well could have inherited the stone as well as the messianic line, but he lost his birthright uh, due to raping Bilhah, his father's concubine, while she lay alone and drunk in her tent. Yehuda wasn't exactly the man for the job either, as he was handing his kingly scepter off to his daughter-in-law Tamar, confusing her for a prostitute. We could go down the line of each brother and note why Yaakov chose not to entrust the stone to them, but why bother? Clearly, Yosef was the savior of Mitraim. He is the only brother among the patriarchs who is painted in bold messianic strokes. And anyways, his two sons, through Dinah's daughter, Asenath, Manesha, and Ephraim, just so happened to play an important part in the, in the scone stone's present whereabouts. And then we see here a, a very scary looking picture of a mummy. 
I was uh, I was writing the section when one of my sons walked in and he was like he was like what is that he was all he was all friends and we see here in Wikipedia I'm Hotep uh, means the one who comes in peace and I'm Hotep was an Egyptian chancellor to the pharaoh. Now, I was trying to figure out how to pronounce this. I, I don't know if the J is, I think it's silent. So I think it's Pharaoh Dozer. Possible architect of Dozer's Step Pyramid and high priest of the sun god Ra at Heliopolis. Very little is known of Imhotep as a historical figure, but in the 3,000 years following his death, he was gradually glorified and deified. Now, many have speculated that Yosef and Imhotep are indeed the same person. The Boris Karloff mummy film resurrected Imhotep so as to portray him as an antagonist. But then look at how the Wikipedia immediately sets out to describe him. His very name means the one who comes in Shalom, which cannot be said of the mummy film or the later remakes to follow. He is accredited as being the chancellor to Pharaoh Dozer, but more on that in a moment. He was also said to be high priest of the son Elohim Ra at Heliopolis. Well, only a moment ago, I had dropped a breadcrumb linking Aseneth to Dinah, the only daughter born to Yaakov. You may have been wondering how I did that. You'll have to follow the entire breadcrumb trail here. And here's the link, the only begotten daughter of Elohim. I made those into a couple of videos about a year ago as well. In short, Aseneth was the child of rape. Read the paper, and you'll also come to learn that she became the adopted daughter of Potiphar. That would be her daughter. Um, oh, yeah, well, that would be Aseneth. Yes, the same Potiphar who, uh, whose wife was naughty around Yosef. It would take Yosef to help her fill in those pieces, that she was indeed a Hebrew. And guess what else? Potiphar was a high priest of Ra. So there is your Ra connection. His wiki article drops various other clues. They're scattered throughout and, throughout, and I will leave it up to you to locate them. But here are a few worth considering. Imhotep is accredited as being a great author of wisdom texts, as well as a healer and physician. Before you ask me to verify where Yosef's so-called wisdom literature disappeared to, I will remind you that not even Imhotep's writing survived, probably for good reason. The medicine connection is particularly fascinating, though. It is Noah who was accredited in Jubilees 1010 as authoring a book on natural medicines, remedies against demons, which were personally dictated to him by Elohim's angels. Yosef would have learned those cures through his lineage, through Seth. I'm sorry, Shem. And then we read here, Imhotep is among the few non-royal Egyptians who were deified after their deaths. Imhotep is among the few non-royal Egyptians who were deified after their deaths. He was common born. That's an important footnote because the pharaohs were from the line of Ham. Being deified isn't incriminating because even Yonah or Jonah was later deified by the people of Nineveh, according to archaeological records. And then consider those pillars you see lining the buildings in Egyptian architecture. Imhotep is said to be responsible for inventing them. Stop and ponder the significance of that. Such a claim accredits the glory of Mitraim's society to a Hebrew and not the Elohim of Mitraim. These are all claims I am pulling from his wiki article. They complement the entire line of thinking provided for us in Jasher chapter 40, wherein Yosef was capable of speaking all 70 post-Babel languages and thus, thusly ascending to Pharaoh up all 70 steps. 
a feat which nobody else was capable of. And anyways, it is when Imhotep is yoked in partnership with Pharaoh uh, Dozer that we are given the biggest clue of all. And we can see there the picture of a big rock in the desert. It's called the Famine Stella. The Famine Stella is an inscription written in Egyptian hieroglyphs located on Sihel Island in the Nile near Aswan in Egypt, which tells of a seven-year period of drought and famine during the reign of Pharaoh Dozer of the Third Dynasty. It is thought that the steel was inscribed during the uh, Ptolemaic Kingdom, which ruled from 332 to 31 BC. You will have to go to another wiki article entirely to read about the Famine Stella. I searched searched Imhotep's page up and down with no mention of it, probably because there are connections to be made and the writers of history don't want us tracing them. The Famine Stella is located on Seahill Island in the Nile near Aswan, and its hieroglyphs tell us a rather savory story. The seven-year famine spoken about in Genesis came upon Mitchim during the reign of Dozer. No, it doesn't outright relate us to the Genesis account, but come on. Need I remind you that Imhotep was Pharaoh's chancellor again. The situation was so dire that somebody decided to chisel the story into the rock on an island in the Nile just to let us know about the seven years when the Nile refused to give, as if that's not a coincidence. We are never told Imhotep is the reason why Mitrim was spared, but seeing as how Imhotep was the glory of his kingdom, the deduction only seems natural. Dozer is thought to have reigned about 28 years in total, and according to the story given to us in hieroglyphs, the seven years famine happened in the 18th year of his reign. Yosef was 17 years old when he was sold into slavery, and 30 when becoming vice-regent, providing us only 13 years between. Given that there were seven years of plenty which had preceded the seven years of famine, Yosef likely entered Mishraim a year or so before Dozer came into power, leaving five or six years after the famine for the rest of the biblical story to work itself out. The glove fits. Another of Imhotep's contributions was the Pyramid of Dozer. There is that name again, Dozer. Sometimes it's called the Step Pyramid of Dozer, but in either case, Imhotep is accredited with having constructed it. And if I am mispronouncing his name, I apologize because I have probably mispronounced it about 15 times now. That will make absolutely no sense to anyone who believes the propaganda that the pyramids were built for housing mummies in. Ridiculous. Really, I don't have the faintest clue why Yosef would have wanted to build this one. Perhaps as a temple for Yahuwah. Or maybe it was simply to store grain in. You tell me. I did, however, happen to scour the pages of extra-canonical literature for you, the reader, and have found a clue. The Great Pyramid of Mitrim was originally built for Yahuwah. Look at all that sand. We are told it is the 1800s. In the photo, the Sphinx is nearly buried. And from the looks of it, somebody had already taken out a shovel. Good thing the archaeologist showed up to dig the pyramids out of a ditch and help tidy things up a bit, or else the casual wanderer might stub his toe. Oh, I'm sure the local Egyptians forgot to take out a broom for a couple thousand years to dust off the roads. That must be it. Let's not get sidetracked with the mud flood, though. Reading on. This comes from chapter 76 of one book or another. And the king clothed me in his own robes and seated me upon his throne, placing his own crown upon my head and his scepter in my hand. And I did teach him and his people and all the mysteries of godliness, or I should say holiness, from first to last. 
For Pharaoh did introduce me into the temple which had been built by the fathers, commenced by Father Seth, and it completed by Father Shem after the great flood. And therein I did officiate in the rites and ordinances of the house of Yahuwah. The writings of Abraham 76, 1 through 3. As I was saying, the great pyramid of Mitraim had once been built for Yahuwah. The context, if you must know, involves Abraham's journey or sojourn in Mitraim. The entire incident with Sarah was has already passed, and now Pharaoh has repented of taking her into his bedchamber. Sure, the temple may be referring to some other temple in Mitraim other than the pyramids, but which one? The temple of Horus at Edfu, the temple of Dur or Kambambo, Luxor? Tell me, those all had pillars. Imhotep was probably the brainchild of the said architecture. The best explanation is the most obvious one. Seth began construction on the Great Pyramid before the flood, and then Shem finished it afterwards. Many have claimed Enoch had the pyramid built, but he was around during Shem's lifetime and very likely had a hand in its design. It was Shem's brother Ham who went about toppling thrones, planting his bum where it doesn't belong. The hostile takeover was his doing. I even covered that here in the Wastelands of the Seraphim. Ham was the pan man. That can only mean one thing. The true his story of the pyramids was stolen by the Metreme. And it makes sense, seeing as how each successive generation of the pyramids became inferior to the other. They didn't have Shem's technological know-how. What are the chances that there are precisely 144,000? It looks like I put a million. <laughs> That's a little typo there. It looks like I put 1,440,000, but it should be 144,000 casing stones on the Great Pyramid. Tell me. I want to know. Now, the coincidences are far from over. The dimensions of the sarcophagus in the king's chamber are the precise dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant, whereas the king's chamber is also the precise dimensions of the Holy of Holies. The room in the uh, in the Yerushalayim temple, which held the ark, the pyramid's entire exterior is void of hieroglyphs, which goes completely against the nature of Egypt, and no pharaoh has ever laid claim to it. And I should have mentioned here too that uh, the, the water damage as well to the pyramid. And then, then we read the following: In that day shall there be an altar to Yahuwah in the midst of the land of Mitzrayim, and at the border thereof to Yahuwah. And it shall be for a sign and for a witness unto Yahuwah, Sevaoth, in the land of Mitraim. For they shall cry unto El Yahuwah because of the oppressors, and he shall send them a savior and a great one, and he shall deliver them. And Yahuwah shall be known to Mitraim, and the Mitraim shall know Yahuwah in that day, and shall do sacrifice and oblation. Yea, they shall vow a vow unto Yahuwah and perform it, and Yahuwah shall smite Mitraim. He shall smite and heal it, and they shall return even to Yahuwah, and he shall be entreated of them and shall heal them. This comes from Yeshiyahu or Isaiah chapter 19. The context is once again the millennial kingdom. Appropriate, don't you think? The promise given to us is that Mitraim would finally turn to Yahuwah via a savior, and we all know who that is. And then notice the awkward part. It says they will perform sacrifices can't say there weren't sacrifices made during Yahushua's kingdom then. Keeping to our present point, any reference to the border would infer lower and upper Mitraim, which is precisely where the Great Pyramid sits, on its border. A further clue can be found embedded in the actual Hebrew text. There are 12 words in verse 19 and 17 words in verse 20, according to in the Hebrew. 
the Hebrew gematria of these of the two verses adds up to 5,449, which just so happens to be the number of inches from the base of the pyramid to its summit platform. Go figure. The conclusion is an obvious one. Had Yosef built a pyramid, then he would have been following in the footsteps of Seth, Enoch, and Shem. Why the pyramid of Dozer has no capstone is anybody's guess. Perhaps the patriarchs were intending to remind us of New Jerusalem's final descent. The thought is that the Stone of Scone was either intended to be its capstone or that it had been at one time and the Hebrews simply looted it on their way out. Obviously, the Hebrews had to have taken it with them as Scone makes numerous other appearances in Scripture. We are not given much information on the stones interim and mitrine, but the Talmud, I know, does speak of its removal. And this is what it says. Two arks came up out of the land of Egypt with Yasharel, one containing the Shekonia stone and the other the body of Yosef. Two arks came out of Mitzrayim, not just one. The other was the ark containing the body of Yosef. The same source has Moshe pulling his casket out from the Nile River, which, stop and think about it, lines us up with the famine Stella narrative. Uh, they buried him in the Nile because uh, Imhotep actually connects us to the Nile, uh, the Nile drying up and how the seven years of plenty. And before you go telling me the first being carried or the first being carried was the Ark of the Covenant, Yahuwah didn't even instruct Moshe into making that one until after uh, he received the Ten Commandments. You can see a few uh, Rivka effects in here. Uh, <laughs> let me repeat that again. Until he received the Ten Commandments on tablets of sapphire. Clearly, the two Arks are in relation with each other. They weren't simply carrying Yosef out of Mitzrayim. No, they were carrying his in inheritance with him. The Stone of Scone may in, fact, may, in fact, make its next canonical appearance in the wilderness. I'm not saying it does make an appearance. That is left for you to decide. And so you will recall how Moshe was commanded to smite the rock in Exodus 17. Water flowed out of it. We know where that rock is. It can be viewed today in Saudi Arabia near Jabal Makla. I guess that's Jabal Makla. Likely the real Mount Sinai, or that's what we're told. But then a similar event happens a second time in Numbers 20. So let's read, we'll read both accounts. Uh, Exodus 17, 6 says this, Behold, I will stand before you there upon the rock in Shorev, and you shall smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moshe did so in the sight of the elders of Yasharel. And then Numbers 20, 8 through 11 says, Take the rod and gather the assembly together, you and Aaron, your brother, and speak ye into the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water, and you shall bring forth to them water out of the rock. So you shall give the assembly and their beasts drink. And Moshe took the rod from before Yahuwah as he commanded him. And Moshe and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said unto them, Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moshe lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. And the water came out abundantly, and the assembly drank, and their beasts also. The Numbers 20 account occurred at a much later hour, as many as 38 years later, maybe even 40. Moshe was commanded to bring forth water out of a completely different rock. Or perhaps it was the same rock, but in two physically separate locations. I will tell you why I suspect so in a few. Either way, there were entirely different results to boot. 
Many will attempt to claim it was the same rock, but that is only because they conf- uh, in the same location. I say that is only because they confuse the wilderness of sin in Exodus in the Exodus account with the wilderness of Zin in Numbers. Sin and Zin, huge difference, <laughs> huge, humongous. Really, you should just listen to your confusion. By my count, there are actually six different wildernesses which the people of Yashrael traveled through. List them off on two hands, unless if you're a six-fingered man. Uh, Shur, Etham, Sin, Sinai, Paran, and Zin. Now, they don't even border each other, Sin and Zin. They arrived in Sin on the 15th day of the second month after leaving Mitraim, according to Exodus 16.1, but did not enter Zin for another year. So, not the same rock then. Yahuwah never told Moshe to smite the rock in the second go-around. No, he said to speak to the rock. Rather than giving Elohim the credit, he then whined like a disgruntled pony after the assembly. Must we? And if that were not enough, he acted irreverently in striking the rock not once but twice. It is for this reason alone that Moshe was not allowed entry into the promised land. The immediate follow-up is telling. And Yahuwah spoken to El Moshe and El Aaron because he believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Yashorel. Therefore, ye shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Ouch, that would have had to hurt so bad. After 40 years, you have to hear that. The sentence pronounced upon Moshe seems a little extreme if he simply fumbled with the instructions given to him and struck a rock in the wilderness out of pure frustration. I mean, would you want to deal with those people? Be careful what you wish for. Not even Yahuwah wanted to deal with them. It was Moshe who saved their rounded extremities when continually praying on their behalf, and he wanted to zap them dead. And no, I am not questioning Yahuwah's judgment. My suggestion is that there is some context missing, kind of like how Noah cursed Ham's child, Canaan. That too is rather punitive unless we come to understand that Canaan was Noah's fourth son and grandson simultaneously because seeing your father's nakedness is an idiom for having sex with your father's wife. What I'm what I am getting at, and you know will know what I'm getting at, is that the stone of scone may have indeed made another appearance. If the stone of dwelling is a marker inciting the house of Elohim, then battering the very rock with Yehuda's scepter and claiming one's own authority rather than simply speaking to the Shekinah within is indeed irreverent. irreverent. The judgment makes perfect sense under such a scenario. I mean, imagine if you just went up and beat the Ark of the Covenant out of frustration. He would have likewise, in doing so, been speaking irreverently against all the kings to come. You're probably wondering why I suspect it was the same rock, but in two separate locations. It comes down to a line I read in one of Paul's letters. And he says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moshe in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual food and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Mashiach. First Corinthians 10, one. Well, 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 what do we have here? We all remember the cloud and Yashua's passing through the Red Sea from our Sunday school days. Those were events, but not merely physical. No, they were spiritual. 
just as assuredly as the spiritual food filled their stomachs and it was manna. And we know that to be the food of angels, according to Psalm 78, 24. But then what is the drink exactly? It came from a rock and was merely physical. Wrong. It is a spiritual rock. And that rock was Mashiach. Did they happen upon a rock in the wilderness that just so happened to be Yahusha waiting around for their arrival? No, they carried it around with them. Paul says it followed them like the Ark of the Covenant or the tabernacle followed them. Moshe only mentions two occasions when the rock was called upon, the beginning of their trip and the end of it. How many times do you suppose they needed to water their flocks in between? Forty years is a long time to starve off a thirst. All right, we are on page 70 if you need to catch up. And speaking of those kings mentioned earlier, it was the custom for the stone to be used in coronation ceremonies. Up until now, much of what we have read regarding its whereabouts may be deemed circumstantial evidence. You are free to argue whether or not the stone made a round trip to Mitzrayim and back with the other Hebrews, but the coronation stone is most assuredly accounted for upon their return. It makes an appearance at Shechem of all places. Then Yahusha built an altar. Uh, this Yahusha is uh, Joshua, not, not the Messiah. Then Yahusha built an altar, altar unto Yahuwah Elohai of Yasharel and Mount Gerizim. As Moshe, the servant of Yahuwah, commanded the children of Yasharel, as it is written in the Sefer of the Torah of Moshe, an altar of whole stones over which no man has lifted up any iron. And they offered thereon ascending smoke offerings unto Yahuwah and sacrificed peace offerings. And he wrote there upon the stones a copy of the Torah of Moshe, which he wrote in the presence of the children of Yasharil. Think about how long that would have taken to write that on that stone in their presence. And all Yasharil and their elders and officers and their judges stood on this side, the ark, and on that side before the priests, the, uh, the Levites, the Levim, which bore the Ark of the Covenant of Yahuwah, as well as the stranger. There's the strangers again, the, the non-Hebrews that are following the Torah because they're in a covenant with the Most High. As he, as he that was born among them, half of them over against Mount Gerizim and half of them over against Mount uh, Evil, as Moshe, the servant of Yahuwah, had commanded before that they should bless the people of Yasharil, Joshua 8, 30-32. You will tell me Yaakov's pillow is never once mentioned in this account and that I am making the whole thing up. It's there if you look hard enough. You may need to squint your eyes. Lean in closer if that helps. Much is going on. An altar of unhewn stone is mentioned. The Ark of the Covenant is also accounted for. It doesn't outright say Shechem, but that much is given with Mount Gerizim and um, evolve, rising up on either side as bookends. Mind you, this is the same valley where Yahuwah appeared to Abraham on his trip into Mitzrayim. It also happens to be the very city where Dinah was raped. Still not seeing it? Let's get to the closing chapter of the book then. And Yahusha wrote these words in the Sephirah of the Torah of Elohim and took a great stone and set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of Yahuwah. And Yahushua said unto all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness unto us, for it has heard all the words of Yahuwah which he spoke unto us. It shall be therefore a witness unto you, lest ye deny your Elohim. So Yahushua let the people depart every man unto his inheritance. A great stone was set up in Shechem, and under the very oak which Abraham had camped by no less. The question of the hour is whether or not this was the same stone as the one they've got over at Westminster Abbey. Its purpose here was to act as a witness to the words of Yahuwah. 
Abraham's seed has arrived as promised, but they still had a decision to make regarding the blessing and the curse. Mind you, the sanctuary had yet to be moved to Shiloh. And then look what else the chapter says. And the bones of Yosef, which the children of Yashorel brought up out of Mitzrayim, buried they in Shechem, in a parcel of ground which Yaakov bought of the sons of um, Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of silver, and it became the inheritance of the children of Yosef. Joshua 24.32 Yosef was the inheritor of the Shekinah stone. Two arks left Metrine together, one containing the bones of Yosef, the other his stone. Once again, their relationship with the other is insinuated. And then this is what we read in the book of Judges. And all the men of Shechem gathered together in all the house of Milo and went and made uh, Avimelech, um, he would be pronounced Abimelech in, in the English, and made Avimelech king by the plain of the pillar that was to Shechem. Judges 9.6. Ah, there it is. The stone is mentioned in connection with Avimelech being declared king. Avimelech was the son of Gideon through a concubine and a rather wicked fellow, if I do say so myself. It didn't turn out too well for him. After setting a tower ablaze, a woman dropped a millstone upon his head. And rather than being known as someone who was killed by a woman, he asked his armor bearer to run him through with a sword. To his chagrin, the writer of Judges decided to add in both details, that the armor bearer killed him and the woman killed him. If indeed the stone at Shechem is the stone of scone, then it was moved at some unknown mile marker in his story. Perhaps to Shiloh at one time or another, and then from Shiloh to Yerushalayim. The reason why is an evident one, as even the Ark of the Covenant was picked up and set down. Supposing for the moment that the stone of Shechem, the stone at Shechem, was not the stone of Scone, and that very well may be the case. The reason why Avimelech would choose that pillar to be coronated on may rely upon the likelihood that he had no access to the stone of Scone in the tabernacle, and he was looking for a close second. Possible. Either way, Scone was used for the coronation of Yashorel's kings, and at one time or another, it arrived at Zion. And the point I'm trying to make here is that you see a king, uh, a person being coronated king, using a stone that is Yahuwah's word, his, his testimony, uh, to be a testimony to the fact that he's a king. So that was a Hebrew pastime to do that. And what do we see here? We see in, oh, this comes from 2 Kings. And the guard stood, every man with his weapon in his hands, round about the king, from the right corner of the temple to the left corner of the temple, along by the altar and the temple. And he brought forth the king's son, and put the crown upon him, and gave him, test gave him the testimony. And they made him king, and anointed him. And they clapped their hands, and said, Elihim, save the king. That's, that's actually interesting. I never picked up. They clapped their hands. I didn't know that was a pastime. I thought, you know. You hear like break a leg, right? Like people used to stomp their leg. But And when uh, Athel Yahu heard the noise of the guard and of the people, she came to the people into the temple of Yahuwah. And when she looked, behold, the king stood by a pillar as the manor was. And the princes and the trumpeters by the king and all the people of the land rejoiced and blew with trumpets. And Athel Yahu rinsed her clothes and cried, treason, treason. 2 Kings 11, 11 through 14. Not sure what the woman's problem was. Keep reading another couple of verses, and she's led out back to the horse's stables and promptly done away with. She seemed rather unpleasant. So good riddance, I guess. 
I found a painting which illustrates the episode, and nothing about a pillar is shown. See what I mean? An artist goes out of his way to paint a thousand words and skims right over the little details. The text reads, as the manor was. I take that to mean it was the custom of Yashiro's kings to be coronated on the stone. The king being coronated was uh, Yahuash and only eight years old. We are told he was born in the year 648 BC. I will go ahead and ask, if he was the eighth king of Yehuda, then how long do you suppose the stone ceremony was a custom? Can't say Yahuash was a wicked king. He ruled for 40 years, and we're, we're told he was righteous for most of it. Seems to me like the coronation stone was a Davidic tradition, even older. Look what happens next. And Yahu Yada cut a covenant between Yahuwah and the king and the people that they should be Yahuwah's people between the king also and the people. Second Kings eleven seventeen. A covenant was cut between Yahuwah and the king and the people. His close proximity to the coronation stone isn't a coincidence either. Skip ahead another dozen chapters and the same scene unfolds. And the king stood by a pillar and cut a covenant before Yahuwah to walk after Yahuwah and to guard his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their hearts and all their soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this sephir, and all the people stood to the covenant. Second Kings 23.3 It is still Yahuash cutting a covenant before Yahuwah, and once again we find him in very close proximity with his coronation stone. Probably just another coincidence. Here's the thing, though. The story of Scripture is always about mankind's inability to uphold his end of the covenant. Hopefully you're well aware of that by now. It is always Elohim who comes through in the end. I imagine you even know where the story turns. By the time that Yahuash ascended to the throne, Yasharel had already been cast out of the land. They were handed his bill of divorce by Yahuwah and done away with. The last king of Yehuda was right around the corner. It was all coming to a head. So this is the next part. People of covenants, the divorce and remarriage of Yasharel. The textbook year in which Yirmiyahu, the prophet, that would be Jeremiah if you're curious, was born is 650 BC. Not that the year itself matters, mind you. The understanding is that he was the whereabouts of two years old when Yahuash was born in 648. Ten when he was made king. My entire point is that they were contemporaries of each other, as were Yehuda's final few kings to follow. Yirmiyahu wouldn't be called into the ministry for another several years, probably right about the time when Yehuash cut a covenant for the second time. His quest was a peculiar one, too. He tells us what it is in his opening chapter. Before I formed you in the belly, I knew you, and before you came forth out of the womb, I sanctified you, and I ordained you a prophet unto the nations. Yirmiyahu 1.5. I can't even begin to tell you how many instances I've read that passage only to get hung up on his being known by Yahuwah in the womb. I mean, we discuss that one often. Nothing wrong in that. It's just keep reading to the end. He was simply called to be a prophet to the kingdom of Yehuda. No, it doesn't say nation. It says nations, plural. Well, that's strange. Yashorel had already been uprooted from the land by then. The Assyrians hauled Yashrel out of there in 722 BC, if you must know. 
Nobody who experienced that event was likely living, certainly not at the time he wrote the book. Only one nation remained. So then who is the other nation? And if there is more than one, then how many? Then Yahuwah put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And Yahuwah said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and pull down and to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. Same chapter, Jeremiah or Yirmiyahu, chapter 1, 9 through 10. Jump ahead a few verses and it happens again. Yahuwah says Yirmiyahu is set over the nations, plural, and over the kingdoms, plural. So which kingdoms are we talking about? Babylon and Nineveh and whatever else was going on in China? Obviously not. None of those kingdoms were rooted out, pulled down, nor destroyed during his lifetime. And he certainly didn't have a part in building or planting them. Only Yehuda was rooted out during his lifetime. That's one nation. Where is the other nation or nations that he was intended to plant? Don't worry, I will fill you in on the details. What I intend to show is that Yermiahu was not only commissioned to oversee the uprooting of the kings of Yehuda, he was directed to reestablish the house of Yasharel in a completely new location apart from what they'd known. That place in question is Britain, Ireland, if we're being technical, not forgetting Scotland. You say tomato and I say tomato, but is it not all Great Britain? Why call the whole thing off when what I'm really attempting to do is come around full circle? For in his possession, you see, was the Stone of Scone. Before we can arrive once more on Britain's shore, there is one other little important matter which needs tending to, Yashiril's divorce. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Yashiril broke wedlock, I had put her away and given her a sefer of divorce. Yermiyahu 3.8. And there it is, folks. Can't get any more clear cut than that. Yahuwah handed Yashiril a bill of divorce. The prophet inscribing these words is Yermiyahu of all people, which is appropriate considering his part in the European narrative. The question some of you may be having is how exactly the divorce came about. Oh, so what are the ramifications? If so, then good, because I'm about to tell you. I would suggest holding on to a loved one and bracing yourself if you haven't already. Because really, and I just now thought about this, the story of the Millennial Kingdom in Britain will make absolutely no sense if the divorce question isn't settled. The books of Moshe ended with a curse. Perhaps you are a glass half full sort of person and you'd rather hear about the blessing. That's nice. Yashiril didn't choose that option. Had they done so, then all would have been fine and dandy and we wouldn't be having this discussion. Fact of the matter is, the story of Messiah's kingdom cannot be fully understood nor appreciated unless their diaspora story is acknowledged. A raise of hands. How many are aware of the fact that Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim, handed Yashiril a bill of divorce? It's in the Bible. What do they teach in churches these days? The fork in the road was before them, and they went with the broad path. In turn, Yehuda would play her part as the whore, but one thing at a time. That's, of course, fine when we get to 70 AD. Here is what we read regarding the curse. But it shall come to pass if you will not hearken unto the voice of Yahuwah Elahika. And that means, Elahika means your Elohim. 
to guard, to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you this day, that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And Yahuwah will scatter you among all people from the one end of the earth, even into the other. And there you shall serve other Elohim, which neither you nor your fathers have known, even wood and stone. Deuteronomy 28, 15 and 64. There it is again. Guarding the command sounds awfully important to Yahuwah Elohim, but that's probably none of my business. I then skipped ahead nearly 50 verses so as not to write out the entire chapter, but I wanted to see what the curse entails. Yahuwah promised to scatter the children of the Asherah among all people groups from the one end of the earth until the other, which is precisely what happened at a later hour. Rather strange that he would curse his own people and disperse them into all the world for a matter of disobedience and then expect them not to be obedient anymore. But that is what is taught in the church nowadays. Ridiculous. Don't even get me started on that rant or we will never get through this. Somebody out there is prepared to tell me guarding the commands is for Yashril, not for us. Well then, how do you know you're not descended from Abraham through any one of the 12 patriarchs? Tell me. I want to know. It says right here that Yashua was scattered among all peoples. I take that to mean the whites and the blacks and the reds and the yellows. Is playing Russian roulette with your soul a pastime favorite of yours? The more likely scenario is that you are descended from the house of Yashua and that the biblical narrative before us is your story and not some other people's. But even if you fall into the far less likelier category and are in no way related to any one of Yaakov's 12 sons, then there is something which Paul would call being grafted in, Romans 11. Fight it all you want, but there's no possible way out of this one. Quick his story lesson. For a relatively short time, all 12 tribes were ruled by three kings, Shaul, David, and Shaloma, that's Solomon. Shaul was an epic failure. His house came to naught. David, as you well know, had a heart for Yahuwah, whereas Shaloma had a heart for, well, women. Foreign women. He bedded with Pharaoh's daughter, but then there is the long list of women from the surrounding nations which he brought in as his own. Moabite, Ammonites, Edomite, the Donian, and not forgetting the Hittite. And we read this, But King Shaloma loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moavim, Ammonim, Edomim. I like my pronunciations better above. Uh, uh, the um, Sidonian and the uh, Hittim. Of the nations concerning which Yahuwah said unto the children of Yashorel, ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their Elohim. Shaloma clave unto these in love. Yeah, he, he loved women. Speaking of which, and he had 700 women, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his women turned away his heart. First uh, Kings 11, 1 through 3. Shaloma's gluttony was unmatched. 700 wives, many of them princesses, and another 300 concubines assembled into the arsenal of his affections. And as you can see, his heart was turned. The details only continue to deteriorate from there. Uh, Ashtoreth, Moloch, uh, that naked goddess with her legs spread apart on the Starbucks cup, you name it. If there was a sacrifice to the pantheon of Elohim to be had, then Shaloma was on it. 
And then look at what happens within only several short verses. Wherefore, Yahuwah said unto Shaloma, Forasmuch as this is done of you, and you have not guarded my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely rend the kingdom from you, and will give it to your servants. Notwithstanding, in your days I will not do it for David, your father's sake, but I will rend it out of the hand of your son. Howbeit, I will not rend away all the kingdom, but will give one tribe to your son for David, my servant's sake, and for Jerusalem's sake, which I have chosen. 1 Kings 11, 11 through 13. Well, that is that well, that escalated quickly. Women can't live with them, or in Shaloma's case, can't live without them. Should have stuck with one woman then, or two or three, maybe twelve. Twenty even might be manageable. Local girls, you know, daddy's girls with fine repute among the neighborhood rabbi and local synagogue, rather than those downtown girls who made a name for themselves on the Ashtoreth pole. And then seven hundred and some change to boot. No thank you. Thus, Shaloma's reign over the United Kingdom of Yashorel from Jerusalem amounted to a total sum of 40 years, an interesting number considering the 40 years which David also reigned over a United Kingdom. Point is, Shaloma would be the last to do so. His story has recorded for us the precise moment when the kingdom was definitively split in two. It involves Shaloma's son, uh, Rechavam, in conflict with uh, Yar- <laughs> Yaravam of um, I'm not even gonna pr- I can't pronounce that guys I'm sorry and all and it all goes down in the following chapter First Kings twelve I'll leave it up to you to read it the northern kingdom which consisted of ten tribes became the house of Yasharel whereas the two southern tribes Yehuda and Benjamin remained in the kingdom of Yehuda the Levites would join them making three in total with Yerushalayim remaining under their jurisdiction, just as Yahuwah had promised. Founded in the whereabouts of 930 BC, the northern kingdom of Yashorel would host a succession of 18 kings over the span of two centuries. It is rather stunning then to note that not one single king of the northern kingdom is ever recorded as having devoted himself to Yahuwah. No, not one. The kings of Yashorel were repeatedly recorded as being wicked through and through, committing evil in the sight of Yahuwah. And it's not like their final demise came without admonishment either. Yahuwah sent forth any number of prophets, uh, Micah, Eliyahu, Elisha, Yonah, Amos, and Husha, that's Hosea, are just a few of them. That is a lot of material to cover, and I am not prepared here and now to cover it all. The present narrative is still a rather straightforward and obvious one, though. Their pleas were of little to no effect. Like Shaloma before them, the northern kingdom of Yasharel went whoring after an entire pantheon of Elohim rather than guarding Yahuwah's commands. And in doing so, Elohim finally delivered them over to the desires of their hearts. The year we are told it happened in was 722 BC when the house of Yasharel was finally taken captive by Assyria. For ten tribes would never return. Yasharel not only assimilated into the surrounding nations, in doing so, they became Goyim. Which brings us right back to Yermiyahu and the divorce issue. And I saw when, for all the causes whereby backsliding Yashrael broke Whitlock, I had put her away and given her a sephir of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister, Yehuda, feared not, but went and played the harlot also. I'm repeating Yermiyahu 3.8 again because on the last go-around, the concluding sentence was purposely left out. Yehuda also played the part of the harlot. 
you'd think they'd stand back, watch Yashril get ripped a new one by the Assyrians and go, dang. But no, they decided the Northern Kingdom was a little too quiet and that what their absence needed was even more lawlessness. They needed to, you know, do away with the law. The issue of divorce was on the basis of breaking wedlock, a reference to the covenant which they had made with Yahuwah at Sinai. Attention must be called to the Torah then because that is a humongous problem in terms of salvation. Follow along. And this comes from Deuteronomy chapter, I don't know, well, Deuteronomy. I think it's chapter 24. Put a 20 there. Might be another Rivka effect. We'll find out. When a man has taken a woman and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a sephir of divorcement and give it in her hands and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's woman. And if the later man hates her and write her a sephir of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house, or if the later man died, which took her to be his woman, her former man, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his woman. After that, she is defiled. For that is abomination before Yahuwah. And you shall not cause the land to uh, sin. I put sun there, but you shall not cause the land to sin, which Yahuwah Elohika gives you for an inheritance. The Torah states in no uncertain terms that a woman is not allowed to return to her husband if he divorces her and she takes another man. Contrarily, a woman may return to her husband if adultery were not the cause and she refrained from taking another man after the divorce. But that wasn't the case with Yashorel. They had already been whoring after other Elohim. It was a trend which undoubtedly continued. Should those other Elohim and the surrounding nations tire of them, Yahuwah had no legal rights to restore her. You will tell me the sons of Yashorel are not a woman and that this example doesn't apply. Need I remind you, though, that it is Yahuwah making the claims in Yahu 3.8 that Whitlock had been broken. And then look what else is spoken. They say... If a man put away his woman and she go from him and become another's, another man's, shall he return unto her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again to me, says Yahuwah. Divorce also implies that Yashiro had surrendered her physical inheritance. The land itself belonged to the bridegroom, and so the whoring tribes could not return. Yermiyahu seems to say so in the very least that the land would be polluted if Yashorel returned. A stunning contrast has therefore just been offered. In the same passage, Yahuwah asked that she return to him again. How is that possible? The answer was already given to David in an earlier century. So this comes from 1 Chronicles 17.9. Also, I will ordain a place for my people Yashorel and will plant them, and they shall dwell in their place and shall be moved no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness waste them anymore as at the beginning. There is the word plants again, which is precisely what Yermiyahu is later instructed to do with a kingdom other than Yehuda. Here the nation is even identified, Yasharel. But wasn't David already the sovereign over the kingdom of Yasharel? He was. Nobody had been uprooted yet. You will have to read the entire chapter for greater context. It involves the prophet Nathan being told in the middle of the night that David's seed would be the one to build the temple in Yerushalayim, not David. 
It is the same message which has Yasharul being planted in a place of their own, never to be moved again. The answer to Yasharul's divorce problem was resolved in the rejected stone, Yahusha HaMashiach. You probably have that thought floating around in the back of your mind, but I just wanted to make sure because you never really know. Though it is true that the books of Moshe had ended with a curse, the bad blood pitted between Yahuwah and the adulterous house of Yasharil would not always remain. What I had neglected to tell you earlier is that a blessing was promised beyond the horizon, even long after the curse was chosen. The story of Yasharil's regathering is the gospel message. It is your story, and it is my story. It is the story of the millennial kingdom of Messiah, but even afterwards, where we find ourselves now. It is still our story because Yahuwah is opening our eyes to his set-apart ways, and we are the seed of the sheep of his pasture. So what do we read here? This comes from, again, Deuteronomy chapter 30. And it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon you, the blessing and the curse. So notice the blessing has happened and the curse has happened, which I have set before you, and you shall call them to mind among the nations, whether Yahuwah Elahika has driven you. So that's speaking to us. And shall return unto Yahuwah Elahika, and shall obey his voice according to all that I command you this day, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that then Yahuwah Elahika will turn your captivity and have compassion upon you, and will return and gather you from all the nations, whether Yahuwah Elahika scattered you. If any of yours be driven out into the uttermost parts of heaven, from thence will Yahuwah Elahika gather you. And from thence will he fetch you. And Yahuwah Elohika will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will do you good and multiply you above your fathers. And Yahuwah Elohika will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed to love Yahuwah Elohika with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Deuteronomy 31 through 6. It is often a struggle figuring out what I should highlight in a passage or if the marker should even be taken out on anything at all. Sometimes it is best to leave the cap on. There's so much going on here, and yet I couldn't help but notice one tiny, itty-bitty detail. The mass awakening which Yahuwah promised when he would gather his children from every nation, indeed, from the very ends of the earth by which they had been scattered, would come about in compliance with Elohim's commands. It is a future promise, for them at least, an end times event. And notice what Yahuwah doesn't say. He doesn't say the diaspora of Yasharil would obey whatever his commands or lack of commands were on that day. He doesn't say the Torah would be done away with either. No, he says all that he had commanded them on this day, which is the same thing as saying that day rather than our day. Try not to forget. Disobedience to his commands rather than obedience is what got us into this mess in the first place. If you don't believe the writings of Moshe, then let's see what Yahusha has to say on the matter. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the father knows me, even so know I the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep have I, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring and they shall hear my voice. And there shall be one fold and one shepherd, Yochanan. 10, 14 through 16. Um, wow. The defense rests. I leave it now for the jury to decide. How does a commentator such as myself even top something like that? He doesn't. We have all heard about the sheep and the goats, but there, 
But here, Yahusha qualifies two separate folds of sheep. He is the shepherd of them both. But just as importantly, he intended to bring them into one fold. If the first is Yehuda, then who do you suspect the other fold might be? Don't fight it. Unless you are Yahudim, then you are Yasharel. Search your feelings. You know it to be true. As I was saying, the story of Yasharel's divorce and regathering is the gospel. So why aren't we told about it then? I have my suspicions. For one, it would dispense with the terrible doctrine that everyone, everyone in the Bible was a Jew. Abraham was a Jew, just as Moshe was a Jew, just as Eliyahu was a Jew, just as you are a Jew for choosing obedience to the Torah. And likewise, everyone standing around Sinai was a Jew when that is just plain wrong. Yonah was from the tribe of Zebulun, if you get my drift. Convincing anyone that they are Yasharil will cause the Bible to become a family portrait. And then they will read passages such as Deuteronomy 30 for themselves. And quite suddenly, the Torah will transform the Bible into a living document. Our temple controllers ha are having a difficult time planting bums in the pews as it is, and so they can't have that. By announcing his intent to bring the sheep back into the fold, Yahusha was directing his Talmudim's attention to any number of prophets. Husha, Yirmiyahu, I have mentioned. But then how about Micah? I will surely assemble, O Yaakov, all of you. I will surely gather the remnant of Yasharil. I will put them together as the sheep of Batra, as the flock in the midst of their fold. They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men, Micah 2.12. Rather difficult reading Yahusha's words in Yochanan 10 and then pairing that up with Micah and seeing two completely separate events. Here is what Amos or Amok has to say about it. For lo, I will command and I will sift the house of Yasharil among all nations like as grain is sifted in a sieve, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say, the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. A stunning contrast is made between those who are his and those who are not. Those who are not are still qualified as being of his people, Yasharel, but their sins have determined that they will die by the sword. Those who are his, however, will receive a divine protection, though they are sifted among all nations. Reading on. Therefore say, thus says Adonai Yahuwah, although I have cast them far off among the heathen, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet will I be to them as a little sanctuary in the countries where they shall come. Therefore say, thus says Adonai Yahuwah, I will even gather you from the people and assemble you out of the countries where ye have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Yasharel. Ezekiel 11, 16-17. I simply adore the part where Yahuwah states he will be to them as a little sanctuary in the countries where they are dispersed, don't you? Yes, it is perfectly acceptable for me to adore something. So many little sanctuaries everywhere across this flat, motionless plain. It's masculine, and I stand by it. But then what does Yahuwah mean exactly by stating that he will give the reunited sheep the land of Yasharel? Is he talking about the modern state of Yasharel or someplace else? I hope to answer that question. Not here, though. Not yet. You will have to keep reading to find out where I suspect the land is, as if it hasn't been made obvious by now, because I like to keep my reader on his or her toes, perhaps even whip a few of you into tip-top shape. Help you lose that intellectual baby fat which you showed up to class with. That's what my uh, my German weight uh, training teacher told me on my first day of class, my senior year of high school. 
you have to imagine that with the German accent. It makes, it's pretty awesome. And so let's keep at the mental exercises. Here is something else which Ezekiel has stated. As a shepherd seeks out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day, Ezekiel 34, 12. Such promises fill the pages of the prophets, but these promises in and of themselves do not resolve the deeper mystery. Concerning all that I have already shown regarding Yashua's divorce, one must then ask, how could the, the issue possibly be resolved? Despite being, or despite best intentions, what gave Elohim the legal authority to remarry a divorced bride when the Torah openly opposed it? Ah, now we're getting into the heart of the gospel message. Why, the covenant maker would make her a widow. So this comes from Romans chapter 7, which I hope to get there in our study in a couple weeks. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the Torah. Interesting how Paul is speaking to the Torah, folks. How that the Torah has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman which has a man is bound by the mitzvah to her man so long as he lives. But if the man be dead, she is loosed from the mitzvah of her man. So then if, while her man lives, she be married to another man, she shall be an adulteress. But if her man be dead, she is free from the, that mitzvah, so that she is no, no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to that mitzvah by the body of Mashiach, that he should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto Elohim. Romans 7, 1-4. Problem solved. Perhaps a review is in order, though. Paul is reminding the Torah folk in the Church of Rome of the command which is to be found in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. The Torah unequivocally states that a husband can never remarry his bride once she has been given the bill of divorce, should she go off with another man. This is the law. It is eternal. Yahuwah will not break it. The Torah abides. However, by saying we are loosed from the mitzvah of her husband, Paul is stating that the woman is no longer held to the law of adultery. She is free to marry him who was raised from the dead. And I just realized if I had more time, I would put in the Hebrew passage as well, that uh, if we were to leave Messiah now, after having known him, we can't go back because he's not going to die for us again. It's the same thing. It's the law of divorce. If we get divorced from him again, we're done. Someone is prepared to tell me the issue still remains for the house of Yashvil between the time of their divorce and Yahuwah's sacrifice. No, it doesn't. Sacrifice has always been a matter of faith in the covenant maker coming through on his end of the bargain and then living out that faithfulness accordingly. It would take an entire study to hammer out that point properly. Good thing Paul has already done it before the seventh chapter. No reason to lay it on with a shovel. You will... You will have to read my commentary on Paul's epistle to the Romans according to the Torah to settle any matter of disputes. And for those of you listening right now, you've probably been through at least five of those chapters with me. Knowing what we do of Yahusha, passages like Deuteronomy 30 are delivered with perfect clarity. All scattered Yashua ever had to do at any point in his story was repent of their transgressions and then let Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim, do the heavy lifting. Though I will add that I do think that there's a reason they had to be moved to a new land because the land would be polluted. We are on, if you need to catch up, we are on page 89. 
The last Davidic king to sit on the throne in Jerusalem was Zedekiahu. Zedekiahu, excuse me. His overthrow went down in 585 BC. Do the math on that, and Yermiyahu would have been 65 years old. Those years would represent the overthrow portion of his ministry then. There was still another leg of the journey in the sunset of his life, and it's not like he didn't let them in on what was coming. The first four chapters of Yermiyahu's book were dedicated to warning Yehuda about their impending conquest by Babylon. He warned the kings, the priests, and the prophets, but to no avail. They even threw him in prison over his call to repentance. And then one night, the people of Babel showed up for an extended camping trip on the outskirts of Yerushalayim. The king's fate is told to us in Yermiyahu 39. It was in his 11th year that the princes of the king of Babel entered Yerushalayim. Zedekiahu and his fighting men fled during the night. And then this is what we read. But the Kazdim army pursued after them and overtook Zedekiahu in the plains of Jericho. And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar. Let me see if I can get that right. We all know Nebuchadnezzar, but it's Nebuchadnezzar. No, I can't even get that right. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babel to Rivla in the land of Hamath, where he gave judgment upon him. Then the king of Babel slew the sons of Zedek Yahu and Rivla before his eyes. Also, the king of Babel slew all the nobles of Yehuda. Moreover, moreover, he put out Zedek Yahu's eyes and bound him with chains to carry him to Babel. Yerbiyahu 39, 5-7. Killing off the king's sons is a surefire way to remove the scepter from his seed forever. And seeing as how Nebuchadnezzar was thorough in his work, he even slew the nobles of Yehuda, every last one of them. And thus, it would seem to the eyes of the world that the line of David was completely rooted out and that Yahuwah's promises had furthermore come to naught. Well, not quite. Zedek Yahu was the uncle of Yahu Yakin. And if you recall the story, Yahu Yakin had initially ascended to the throne in Yerushalayim after Babylonian assassins off his father, but then only managed to rule for the matter of three months and ten days. Here is what his here is where his story picks up again. And it came to pass in the seven and thirtieth year of the captivity of Yahuyakin, king of Yehuda, in the twelfth month, on the seven and twentieth day of that month, that Evil Merodach, king of Babel, in the year that he began to reign, did lift up the head of Yahuyakin, king of Yehuda, out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him and set his throne above the throne of the kings that were with him in Babel and changed his prison garments. And he did eat bread continually before him all the days of his life. And his allowance was a continual allowance given him of the king, a daily rate for every day, all the days of his life. Wow, he was in prison for 30 years. Almost like Mandela or something. Thus concludes the book of Second Kings. And so I suppose it does happen to end with a ray of light. The line of David lines uh, lives on to see another day. If you check the genealogy given to us by Matith Yahu, that would be Matthew, then you will see that Yahu Yakin makes one last appearance as Yahusha's 12th great-grandfather. Apparently, life in Babel wasn't all dungeons and stretch wrecks after all, as he sired a son there. 
His grandson, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, was responsible for laying the foundations for the second temple, having already led a great number of the Yahudim back to their native land. Why wasn't he made king of Yerushalayim then? If not him, then why not anyone of Yahuyakin's offspring? That's the curious thing. Never again would a Yahudim king sit on the throne in Yerushalayim. I am well aware of the fact that Yahusha is high priest and king and all that, but not even he ruled from Yerushalayim. He could have, but they didn't want him as their king, obviously. The uprooting claim by Yermiyahu couldn't be any more apparent with Yerushalayim's destruction in 70 AD. And so it can truly be said that a Davidic king never ruled from Yerushalayim again. But wait, there's more. Who is to say a Davidic line of kings did not rule from elsewhere? There is still the second leg of Yermiyahu's ministry to consider the planting of another nation or nations within his lifetime mind you and not in another perhaps Yermiahu leaves us some clues i give no promises and so picking up in chapter 39 again now nebuchadnezzar i think i got that right now nebuchadnezzar king of babel gave charge concerning Yermiahu to nebuzaradan nebuzaradan the captain of the guard saying take him and look well to him and do him no harm but do unto him even as he shall say unto you. Yermiyahu 39, 11 through 12. That's quite the charge. The embers barely had time to cool in Yerushalayim, and Zedek Yahu's eyeballs were still moist when Nebuchadnezzar honored the very man who had devoted the last several decades to warning Yehuda's government of what would befall them should they refuse to repent. He wasn't simply given freedom to move about the country either. You figure there was money included with that commission, a blank check even. How else would, how else would the captain of the guard be capable of following through with Yermiyahu's request if a purse wasn't offered? Yermiyahu was still on a mission, and we can see what it is in his response. I just want to point out here that, you know, like in the conspiracy theory realm, everyone is concerned about what is coming. but. Yahuwah always puts a shield of protection over his servants. And you see these captors come in and take him off to these other cities. Like we hear about how we're going to be lit off to China and, you know, all these different places and FEMA camps. But look what happens to them. The kings honor them. The very people who are telling them to repent because the captors were coming in, they're the ones that are honored when the captors do come in. Think about that. Then went Yermiyahu unto Gadol Yahu, the son of Aki. <laughs> this is just torture, guys. Uh, Aki Kam to Mitzvah and dwelt with him among the people that were left in the land, Yermiyahu 46. He went to Mitzvah. It is located on the southwest slopes of Mount Hermon and is the same place where centuries earlier Yaakov and Laban had parted ways. That Gadol Yahu mentioned had been made governor over a remnant of Yahudim by Nebuchadnezzar. And since Yerushalayim was leveled, Mitzpah was chosen for his headquarters. Long story short, the king of Ammon plotted with someone named Yishmael to have the governor assassinated. Their plot was a wild success, and many of the remnant were carried away. Bummer. Oh, well. Perhaps the sun will shine brighter on another day. Here is what we read about it. Then Yishmael carried away captive 
uh, all the remnant of the people that were in Mitzpah, even the king's daughters, and all the people that remained in Mitzpah. Yirmiyahu 41.10. Did you read what I just read? Hopefully so. See, this is why I make a devoted effort in highlighting this stuff, so that you won't miss a single minute of the fun. It says the king had daughters. That would be a reference to Zedek Yahu. I was under the impression that his seed had been eliminated. Seems to me that if you don't want heirs to the throne, killing the sons and the nobles, but then leaving the daughters is a large oversight. But it is what it is. It furthermore states how Yeshmael carried away captive all the people that remained in Mitzpah. By that, we can include Yirmiyahu in their ranks. I am attempting to make headway here and skim the details, and so skipping ahead another chapter or so, a, ma a man named Yochanan, or would be John in Greek, soon replaced Yeshmael as the conspirator. Fearing reprisal from the king of Babel, he asked Yirmiyahu to pray on his behalf. Yirmiyahu 42, 2-3. In response, Yirmiyahu told Yochanan what Yahuwah Elohim had told him, and it was this. They were not to go into Mitzrayim. If they did, then the king of Babel would overtake their party and Yochanan would fall by the sword. Would you be surprised to learn that his captor didn't listen? Me neither. Continuing. But Yochanan, the son of Karak, and all the captains of the forces took all the remnant of Yehuda that were returned from all nations, whether they had been driven to dwell in the land of Yehuda, even men and women and children and the king's daughters and every person of Nevu Zaradon, the captain of the guard, had left with Gadol Yahu, the son of Akakam, the son of Shaphan, and Yermiyahu the prophets, and Baruch, the son of uh, Niryahu. So they came into the land of Mitraim, for they obeyed not in the voice of Yahuwah. Thus came they even to Takpanchek. Takpanchek. Yirmiyahu 43, 5-7. Once again, Yirmiyahu and the king's daughters are accounted for. But then there is another name which I purposely didn't underline this time. Baruch. Mm -hmm. The same Baruch who wrote 1st Baruch and its most excellent follow-up, 2nd Baruch. This is my way of testing to see if you're paying attention. Would it again surprise you to learn that Nebuchadnezzar's boys caught up with them and had Yochanan killed? Most would assume the surviving Yahudim remained in Mitzrayim afterwards, which they did, or that they journeyed as far as Ethiopia, which they did, and that the others simply returned to Yerushalayim. None of those theories speak of Yermiyahu's mission statement, though, nor does it explain what happened to the king's daughters. Mind you, it is daughters who are being mentioned, plural. How many daughters are we talking about? Two or several? Imagine a dozen pretty preppy princesses hauling it over the sand dunes with a couple of old men to guide them. Who was required to lug their makeup bag and jewelry box, I wonder? Perhaps Yeshiyahu was fed up with their attitude and had them carry it. Or maybe they had camels. Yes, that is probably it. If I had to take plight with a pot of princesses and have the king's purse at my disposal, you can be sure I'd hire some camels. Yaks if I were headed to Nepal. And besides, they had the Stone of Scone, probably other temple odds and ends. I'll even go as far or so far as to advance the possibility that they carried the Ark of the Covenant on their possession, requiring the company of Levites. That's best left for another conversation, though. I didn't have time to write that in because Mitzrayim was not established as a Hebrew nation at that time, nor was Ethiopia as a kingdom of Yehuda. You will tell me they went to Mitzrayim, 
but then turned around and established Yahoo all over again. When detailing Yeshayahu's purpose several pages ago, I had neglected to show you something. The places in scripture where the same mission statement is given, not by him, but by the prophet Yeshayahu. That would be Isaiah. And the remnant that has escaped of the house of Yehuda shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Yerushalayim shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion, the zeal of Yehuda, Sevaoth, shall do this. That was from Isaiah 37, 31 through 32. And then we see in 2 Kings 19, and the remnant that has escaped of the house of Yehuda shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. And you can read the rest. It's pretty much the same thing. And no, you are not seeing double vision. Not a typo either. There are a few typos in here, but that's not one of them. There are two identical declarations to be found, both of which are given by the same person. A remnant is prophesied to escape from the house of Yehuda. They are then said to take root downward so as to bear fruit upward. It is speaking of a tree being replanted. Not in Yehuda, though. You have to keep reading. It says the remnant will escape Mount Zion and that the zeal of Yehuda Sevaoth will do this. Escape to where exactly? We are not told. The only assurance we are given is that their planting is not in Jerusalem nor Mount Zion. What we are given are several clues, but in other passages, one of which derives from Ezekiel in the form of a riddle. So notice what he says. And the word of Yahuwah came unto me, saying, Son of Adam, put forth a riddle and speak a parable unto the house of Yasharel. Ezekiel 17, uh, 1-2. It is a riddle intended for the house of Yasharel. I recommend a careful reading of the chapter. We learn of an eagle who came into, into Lebanon and took the highest branch of the cedar. The eagle is explained to represent the king of Babel. He cropped off the top of his young, twi of his young twigs and carried them into a land of merchants and heavy traffic, which is further explained to picture the captivity of Yerushalayim's sons in Babel. It goes on from there, and as I said, a careful reading will reveal much of what we've just rehearsed, though admittedly, I skimmed over some details. The entire episode is explained by Yehuda to be the first half of Yermiyahu's mission, the uprooting of Yehuda. And so notice what follows, the planting of David's throne. Thus says Adonai Yehuda. I will also take up the highest branch of the high cedar and will set it. I will crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one and will plant it upon a high mountain and eminence. In the mountain of the height of Yasharel will I plant it. And it shall bring forth, uh, it shall bring forth boughs and bear fruits and be a goodly cedar. And under it shall dwell all fowl of every wing. In the shadow of the branches thereof shall they dwell. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, Yahuwah, have brought down the high tree, have exalted the low tree, have dried up the green tree, and have made the dry tree to flourish. I, Yahuwah, have spoken and have done it. Ezekiel 17, 22-24. With all that has already been mentioned, the tender young twigs removed from the cedar must be the king's daughters. The cedar is uprooted, but the twig remains. They are planted upon a high mountain, telling us that a mighty nation is being offered. And not just any nation, it is the very height of Yasharel rather than Yehuda. And I know what you're already thinking. If the ten, if the ten tribes lost or the ten lost tribes are being exalted here, then why are Yehudish princesses intermingling among them? It probably has something to do with the Yehuda or the Jews being given the kingship after Reuven forsook his rights to it. 
It is Yashorel being enthroned upon a high mountain, all right, even if a pretty young princess from Yehuda is chosen to exalt them. I might as well have highlighted the entire passage because it then goes on to claim the entire world, all peoples really, would dwell under their shadow. There's a saying for that, you know, the sun never set on the British Empire. Too soon? Well then, let's keep searching for other clues. Found one. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand also in the sea and his right hand in the rivers. He shall cry unto me, you are my father, my El, and the rock of my Yeshua. Psalms 89, 24 through 26. The his being referred to as David, his hand, meaning David's hand, you might even say his scepter, was promised to be set into the sea. It doesn't outright say mountain in the sea, but it's not like I ever said this would be a clean investigation. It seems to me that his right hand in the rivers denotes a great swath of land beyond Yehuda's borders. Yasharel was spread everywhere during their diaspora, as you well know. Her loss of identity and then return from the Goyim is the story of, gos of uh, the gospel as well as the millennial kingdom. And there is the rock again. Identifying it with Yahusha is picture perfect. But by far not a stretch of the imagination to claim the stone of scone is being referred to here, especially since its mention lines up nicely with what Paul later attributed to the rock in the wilderness in 1 Corinthians. And if you need caught up again, we're on page 97. Arbanel and T. Teffy. Her name was T. Teffy, in case you were wondering. The, Yah the Yehudan princess. On first glance, the name doesn't sound very Hebrew, does it? Tia is of Egyptian origin and means princess, which is interesting since her father, Zedek Yahu, was the last king of Yehuda. And he got into that mess when making an alliance with Pharaoh Hopra rather than Nebuchadnezzar. I will give you her biography in a nutshell. From Mitzpah, T. Tefi traveled to Tanis in the company of Yermiahu and Baruch, where it is said that Pharaoh adopted her as a daughter for a time. Now, I didn't have time to comment on this, but it is interesting that if you, everyone here has seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, where did Indiana Jones go to find the Ark of the Covenant? in Tanis. And according to that, that was the last resting place of the Ark because Baruch and uh, Yermiahu went there. Now, I think that they carried it further with them on their journey, but that's where that story takes place. From Mitzrayim, the party set sail to Gibraltar. One of the primary Irish chronicles, the annals of the kings of Ireland by the four masters, gives us an interesting detail regarding what happened there. He, daughter of Lug Hyde, son of Ifa, son of uh, Briogan, whom Eremon married in Spain. Well, that, that's a mouthful. She married someone by the name of Eremon. But then notice the names of her parentage. Lug Hyde and Ifa and Briogan doesn't sound like Zedek Yahu or his Davidic line at all. Whatever is happening here is undoubtedly important, though, because the Irish people are referred to as the race of Lucide, with Ireland itself being the land of Lucide, which just so happens to be one of the many names for Ireland. Claiming to be the race of Lucide would infer that T. Teffy is the matriarch, Hava, in their story. Very likely, 
the said names are not referring to actual persons. Lughide in Old Gaelic can be broken down to mean House of El. Where have we been hearing that phrase as of late? Log gives us El and Aid incites a house, habitation, or fortress. Likewise, Aoife mean, uh, may mean crown. And then there is the matter of, of uh, Briogan. Brega or uh, Brag, I guess, was the immediate territory of Terra in Ireland and the Celtic tribe known to the Romans as the Brigantes. Well, then get this. Brigante means the exalted one. Thus, T, daughter of Lughide, son of Etha, son of uh, Briogan, could be interpreted to read as follows. T, daughter of the house of El, child of the crown, child of the exalted one, whom Eremon married in Spain. The location of her throne was in Terra, about 40 kilometers northwest of Dublin. 583 BC is the proposed year of her arrival and would place us precisely two years after the overthrow of her father. At that time, Terra was known as Cathar Crofin. T. Taffy then changed the name to its Anglo-Norman name, uh, Tirog. But even that is a, a potential corruption of the Hebrew word Torah. The same location is also known as uh, Timher Nari, meaning Terra of the Kings. By the way, I found her page on Ancestry.com and dropped a link. Looks like she occupied herself in Ireland. Eleven children. Not bad. How one pulls double duty as mother and queen of a country is beyond me, but that's T. Teffy for you. The T. Teffy we've all come to love. Many uh, Irishmen have asserted that Tara, Torah Hill, is home to the tomb of Yermiahu the prophet. Where do they pull that claim? First and foremost, on the basis that the ancient annals of Ireland depict an old white-haired prophet arriving in the land of the little people and carrying in his possession a wonderful stone. Not surprising are the two notable individuals who accompanied him. According to various sources, we are told of an eastern princess and a lesser, a lesser person by the name of Simon Brock or Barak. No telling on where Baruch ended up or was buried. His name was, uh, I guess, Arbanel. All ancient sources that I can find refer to him as a prophet, often naming him Arbanel the prophet. And yet again, we are quite likely being dealt another corruption of the Hebrew. Yermiyahu means Yahuwah establishes. Thus, Yer in Yermiyahu can easily be compared with the uh, Yar in Yarbanel. Yar is simply an abbreviation of the prophet's whole name. Those first two Hebrew letters are Yod and Resh. Yod is the first letter of Yahuwah as well as Yahusha. The letter Resh alludes to the word Rosh, meaning head. And the head, as we all know, is a rather significant part of the body. But then we are left with the rest of his name, Banal. Ban is simply the Hebrew, Hebrew word Ben, meaning son of, with El being the most obvious of all. El for Elohim. Thus, one can easily see that Yarbanel is being translated from Hebrew to the Celts and means Yermiyahu, the son of Elihim. If, if you have arrived looking for the ancient annals, which might prove his existence, then you, you will leave disappointed. Those records have been conveniently misplaced from the Vatican gift shop. There are still several sources worth noting, though, particularly from those who were perfectly capable of reading the Irish annals with a typical library card. One such historian is uh, Geoffrey or Jeffrey Keating. That's such a fun last name, Keating. 
a Catholic priest, Sai. Well, here is some of what we read about him. I'm going to skip all that Wikipedia there, a little snippet. His major work, Foraz Fisa R. Erin, which translates to Foundation of Knowledge on Ireland, was written in early modern Irish and completed in 1634, according to official history. I'm guessing we can shave off the one and make that a clean 634, but I digress. His read promises the detail of the creation of the world to the invasion of the Normans. Epic. But then, as you can see, Keating was not so different from Augustine in that he was attempting to claim the Isles for Roman Catholicism. Dun, dun, dun. And the Brits called him out on it. Here is what Keating quotes regarding Yarbanel. It is derived, we are told, from the uh, Liebhar Gephala. And I'm obviously butchering... Uh, Gaelic speech tonight. That's the other thing I, I forgot to mention. We went to Ireland, and I can actually understand the Irish better than the um, the Scots, but uh, it was probably like a 50-50. Like every other word, I was still like, I don't know what you're saying. The fair Yarbanel, a prophet true, was son of Nemed, son of Ardnaman. To this gray hero, mighty in spells, was born Beotok of wild steeds, Actually, that should say to this gay hero, not gray hero. In calling him fair, the writer may have been describing a lightness of skin, though he may just have very well been accrediting a mild and eloquent temperament. Mighty in spills and cites a miracle worker, which lines up far more with his being a prophet true rather than a stereotype uh, wizard. And then here is yet another claim of Keating. He says, the three sages that held the chief direction of this great school were Phineas Farsa from Scythia, Gadol, son of Ethor of the race of Gomer from Greece, and Kai, the eloquent or the just from Judea, or uh, Yar, Yarbanel, son of Nipha, as others call him. The so-called great school, which Keating refers to, was undoubtedly started by Phineas Farsa, the Phineas Farsa character. I did a background check on Farsa, and he was said among the Irish to be a son of Magog uh, in Genesis. His story furthermore pits him as the construction at uh, pits him at the construction of Nimrod's tower, being one of seventy-two chieftains who played foreman. Afterwards, he is claimed to have attempted to reunite the confused tongues into one universal language. Uh, the Goidelic, which is also known as Celtic. The second sage mentioned is a certain Gaeldal. Not much has survived on him, but he is claimed to stem from the race of Gomer. Perhaps you see what Keating is getting at here. The Celts were the lost children of Yasharel. Their language is often compared to Hebrew, and we see Phineas Farsa attempting to reconstruct the dialect which fancied the original. Gomer was the eldest son of Yapith, but then elsewhere, she was also the prophet Husha's adulterous wife. Gomer's infidelity was a symbol of Yashar's spiritual unfaithfulness, and yet Husha's, uh, Hosea's bond with Gomer was reflected, reflective of Elohim's bond with Yasharel. In fact, the same book describes the last ten tribes as the sons of the said woman. Keating places Yarbanel on a platform as great as the former two. Only here he goes by two names, someone named Kai being one of them. But then he has shortened Yarbanel to Yar, just as I suspected. And look, he's from Judea. Yarbanel is a Hebrew then. I have given you the name of T. Tefi Suter. 
uh, Aramhan. Tuffin, though in other places he is known as, uh, uh, I can't even pronounce this, Eokade. His genealogy claims him to be a son of Tamar, who in turn was Shem's granddaughter. Recall in the tangled web spun in Genesis 38 and how Yehuda bedded with his daughter-in-law, thinking her to be a prostitute. In turn, she gave him two sons, Zerah and Ferez. David was an ancestor of Ferez, uh, Eokade of Zerah. Before consenting, Yermiahu would have had to pull a background check and then sign off on it. He didn't come without credentials, though. Uh, Eokade was a Spanish chieftain now ruling over a people group who called themselves the Thuata da Danian. When translated, it quite literally means tribe of Dan. How T. Tefi's marriage in Spain came about exactly is not completely known. It appears as though Yermiahu was pointedly seeking her prince and that he had targeted Spain in doing so. Contrarily, sailing for Spain rather than Troy might have altogether been T. Tefi's idea. Consider. How long will you go about, O oh, you backsliding daughter? For Yahuwah has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall compass a man. Yermiahu 31.22. That last line is indeed interesting. Translations vary from a woman will shelter a man and a woman shall go about seeking for the husband to Yashua will embrace her Elohim. Which version is correct? They all appear to be. The marriage of Princess Tefi with Prince Charming was likely due to her advances, but also a covenant renewal with Yahuwah with Elohim using the stone of scone as their witness. Yermiyahu would never have consented had either party member refused to return to the Elohim of Yasharel. The reason I surmise that to be true is obvious. T. Tefi was under his care and transgressing the Torah is what he had called upon Yehuda to repent of. But then there is a far more problematic reason, and it is this. This comes from Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Yehuda, nor a Torah giver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gather of the people be. I would have to be a broken record to continually remind you how the kingdom had been uprooted from Yehuda, and yet here I find myself doing it. There was never another king to rule in Jerusalem again. Had the scepter not been transferred to the house of Yasharel and with a Yehudan king to rule over it, then Yaakov's deathbed prophecy would not be true. The second part of his prophecy is just as intense. Yehuda's right to rule is only ever based upon the Torah as a foundation. I figure it's the very reason why Yermiahu has established uh, the Mir Olam Hara, meaning College of the Learned. If you need this spilled out for you, it reads, School of the Prophets in plain English. It's not like Yehusha HaMashiach didn't give Yehuda a chance either. They rejected him, though. And so, which house do you suppose he would turn to? The answer should be a given anyway, since he told us who, who, who he'd come for the lost sheep of Yasharel. And so returning now to my original observation, there's a reason why Europe was so glorified during the Millennial Kingdom. They were members of the house of Yasharel, and quite unlike the Yahudim, they embraced him as their high priest and king. I leave you with a picture of the Stone of Scone, a replica, I am told, but it will do. By now it should be apparent that Yahusha HaMashiach was coronated upon it. I couldn't say where, but if I had to guess, Westminster Abbey is as good a location as any. 
You will recall how Yaakov named the place where the stone stood House of El. Well, then get this. Above the coronation chair in Westminster Abbey are the words, this is the house of God. There are, of course, other implications. Some have suggested the stone of scone was originally intended as the coronation for Shaloma's temple, or not the coronation, the cornerstone, excuse me. It was intended for the cornerstone for Shaloma's temple. The reason being couldn't be any more straightforward. The stone which the builders refuse is become the headstone of the corner. This is Yahuwah's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Psalms 118, 22-23. Rabbinic literature has commented upon this passage, and there is a general consensus that Psalms is indeed referring to a rock that was intended for the temple, but then for an unknown reason, tossed. Which is also completely comical that the psalmist should think to bring up a random rock, which was simply a rock rather than a capital R rock, which was misunderstood. The way I see this playing out is that the temple masons knew full well where the rock had originated from, namely their wilderness wanderings, but that its identity was wildly misunderstood. I'm not simply referring to the stone scone either. Both the rock and Yahusha the rock are of great importance. A very likely scenario is that Yahuwah knew they would reject his word and thus the stone and chose in his wisdom to keep it mobile. Remember now, Paul has already identified the traveling rock in 1 Corinthians to be the Messiah. So he is both the person Mashiach as certainly as he is contained within the rock and the cloud and the pillar of fire. But then notice how Yeshayahu phrases the matter. Therefore, thus says Adonai Yahuwah, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation of stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believes shall not make haste. Yeshayahu 28.16. According to Psalm 118, it is the builders who refuse the stone, whereas here, Yahuwah Elohim is the one who lays the cornerstone. Both passages agree on that issue, but also for the Yahudim, that it would be a bitter pill to swallow or else Yeshayahu would not beckon his reader to believe. Kepha manages the same premise in uh, 1 Kepha when referring to Yahusha HaMashiach as a coming living stone, or soon to come. And so taking everything that has so far been covered, specifically the people of the covenants and the stone of scone, the way in which Daniel describes the ushering in of Messiah's kingdom seems to tie it all together. This is referring to the, uh, the, you know, the towering of statue Nebuchadnezzar. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and become like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, but no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel 2.35 and once again, if you need caught up, we're almost done. We're on page 106. The Lion and the Unicorn. I told you to make a mental note of the unicorn. Bookmark it, even. Were you not given fair warning in advance? I bet you forgot all about it. Seeing as how there were so many pages to push through. We're still on the topic of Great Britain, and it's the royal coat of arms. Think, think very carefully about what is being stated here. You can perform your own search, and they will tell you that the unicorn represents the Scots with the lion filling in for the Brits. Simply adorable. 
Not that it's the wrong answer per se. It's simply not the whole answer. And this is what we read in Deuteronomy. His glory is like the first thing of his bullock and his horns are like the horns of the unicorns. With them, he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth. And they are the ten thousands of Ephraim and they are the thousands of Manasseh. Deuteronomy 33, 17. Ephraim and Manasseh have a mascot and it's a unicorn. The Scottish coat of arms depicts two unicorns and not even they're trying to hide it. I am told the Highlanders have long claimed to be Ephraim of old, of old. I told myself I wasn't going to screw that up. <laughs> the Highlanders have long claimed to be Ephraim of old, which is why they take such a liking to the unicorn rather than a hairy coo on the monad. I love Scotland. And of course, you're well aware of who the lion is a mascot for, yes? Oh, please, don't make me open my, my Bible back up. I'm not copying and pasting this stuff, you know. Fine, here it is. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Yehuda, the roots of David, has prevailed to open the sepher and to lose the seven seals thereof. Revelation 5.5. 5. I couldn't tell you at the moment the represent, representative animal for every tribe of the 12, but what I do know is that not one of them will be handed a crown, except for Yehuda, that is. When our ancestors decided to decorate their shields and flags by pairing the lion and the unicorn together, we should pay attention to what they're trying to convey. Yehuda and Yasharel were returned together into the same sheepfold, just as scripture promised, and he shall set up an ensign for the nations, and shall assemble the outcasts of Yasharel and gather together the dispersed of Yehuda from the four corners of the earth. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Yehuda shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Yehuda, and Yehuda shall not vex Ephraim. Yeshayahu 11.12. What an interesting turn of phrase. Yeshayahu says an ensign will be set up for the nations. I take that to mean a marker of some sort, which would declare the regathering. An ensign is defined as a flag or standard, especially a military or naval one indicating nationality. Well, I'll be. Afterwards, we are told how Ephraim would no longer envy Yehuda, or that Yehuda will no longer vex Ephraim. I'm starting to get the impression that the line of the unicorn declares a reunited partnership together, but who am I to judge? The other giveaway is the X marks the spot on their flag. I know, right? It's like the Scottish didn't know how they could be any more obvious. If you don't have the faintest clue what I'm talking about, then I will help you. It's why I'm here. Give me a moment to type out yet another Bible verse. And Yosef took them both, Ephraim in, in his right hand towards Yashrael's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Yashrael's right hand, and brought them near unto him. And Yasharel stretched out his right hand and laid it upon Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand upon Manasseh's head, guiding his hands wittingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. Genesis uh, 48, uh, 13 through 14. Do you see what is going on here? I didn't highlight anything this time, so you will have to put more work into figuring it out. Well, here is the situation. Yosef wanted Manasseh, his firstborn son, to receive the greater blessing. It's why he propped him up with his left hand so that Yashro could lay the right hand upon him. Yashro, however, chose a different route. He placed both hands upon both children at the same moment, except his right 
gravitated towards the child in Yosef's right hand, which would be Ephraim, and vice versa. In order to do that, he would have formed an X with his arms. The last letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Tav. The current Hebrew letter Tav doesn't look like an X at all. It takes on the shape of a lowercase n in appearance. Not the Paleo-Hebrew, though. It literally means mark, as in the mark of the covenant, and represents the T sound. Egyptian hieroglyphics have their version of the Tav, in which a drawing of, uh, of cross planks form an X, only they call it the Tav. The Phoenicians do too. Even the Greeks thought it would be a good idea. Their towel is where we get the shape of our T. Tav is thought to have been used as the common way to mark sheep by the Yahudim. Another thing that Tav stood for is Torah. T for Torah. Go figure. And of course, when the Scots don't have unicorns on their emblems or crests, they like to have statues of unicorns holding up their flags, apparently. We'll now chuck out the cross arms on this piece of work. Ain't she a beauty? It's the flag of Great Britain. Once more, we see the cross arms of Ephraim, but then there is also a cross overlay directing us right back to the Tav again. The Red Cross has ties to the Templars. It also represents the sick and the dying. So much so that had I seen a flag like this back in the day, during the Millennial Kingdom, that is, I might think the British were coming to heal me rather than tax my rear end. Need I remind you, though, that though the cross is often said to be the symbol for the Tav, an X would be the original. Regardless, the people of the covenant couldn't slap enough marks of the covenant on their emblem, one over the other and then over the other again. You'd think the T for the Torah would be bleeding out of their ears then. What happened? All right, I survived that. We <laughs> That was a very long read. Thank you, everyone, for hanging in there with me. Um, the defense rests, and I hand it over to the jury, and I'm spent. So take all the time you need. Don't need to rush in. Don't everyone rush up at once, but uh, just let me know what you thought, and hope you enjoyed it. Are you really going to leave us hanging there? I'm, I was like, no, no, don't stop now. <laughs> I can't wait to hear the rest of the story. What did happen? Well, the, the mud flood happened. I mean, you know, it, 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 when, what's interesting is that when the, when the, the mud flood events happen, there are, uh, you, you see the, the big conflict between two world empires, right? America and, and Britain. And Britain was clearly a world power at that time. So, you know, my understanding is that there was a, um, uh, it's similar to the Egyptian situation where the Egyptians inherited a culture that wasn't theirs and took it over and corrupted it. And I would say the same thing of the British culture and the American culture that they, you know, the, the controllers uh, inherited something and, um, you know, they, they capsize everything. Yeah.